produced by yeah, that's true. Oh, good, good. We're talking about negativity right. and yeah. pessimism. Yeah, I'm kind of like that with that. Yeah. Um, but what does that have to do with the sign-in? I thought that that was like a really... But she wants to say something negative about it, but... Oh, you want to say something positive? I want to say something positive about it. Like, I felt like it was, like, a really affirmative way of, like, talking about surveillance and also, like, you know, because, like, everyone who signs that book does it consensually and they, like, are like, yeah, I was here, I loved it. Like, that's what the sign-in means. Right, I want you to know. Yeah. Yeah. A signature is always... There's nothing exploitative about it. A signature is consent. That's true. Many of these guest books have, like, you don't even know what you're signing. Yeah, that's true. Actually, this just reminds me of, um, have you guys watched Nathan for you? I have. Um, there's a really good episode that's like one of the most famous episodes, which is called Dumb Starbucks. Yes. And in Dumb Starbucks, he goes to a lawyer to ask about parody law. And the lawyer basically tells him he has to be an artist with a repre- with a, um, with a sort of history of doing parody before he can do a parody Starbucks. I forgot that that's like the angle. Yeah, yeah, so he has an art show about, but but before that, he's talking to the to the lawyer and he's like, so, okay, so whatever I do and if Starbucks um, sues me, you'll be liable as well. And the <laughs> lawyer's like, no. And he's like, but you signed that release. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, you signed that release when you signed the release to be on camera. And he's like, well, you wanted to start shooting, and so I signed it. And Nathan is like, you're a lawyer. (laughs) And the funniest part in that episode is where he, the lawyer, crumples the the. He like grabs release. it from him, He right? grabs the re- yeah. He signs the he crumples the release up, puts it in his pocket, <laughs> and then Nathan like very cool is like, okay, so um, the producer says they just want to get a shot of that like as a cut in. So can you? And he's like, I'm not handing it over. He's like, you can hold it. Can you just hold it out like here so the camera can see it? And then the whole time Nathan's eyes are sort of going like a little bit haywire, like keeping the eye on the paper. And then he make, he lunges for it. Um, that's one of my funny, the funniest things that I've seen. In a uh, oh, I think that's the funniest thing. Yeah. Around. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I speaking mean. of pessimism, that is one of the darkest shows that I I actually feel like that show had that show had a problem with, or maybe it's still around, but like it was so painful to watch that it and made you so queasy about your own sort of like complicity oh, in yeah. it that I think it didn't have as many viewers as as it might have yeah it's interesting last weekend so the new season is coming out i guess this week and last weekend um kyle my husband and i went to a live show where they premiered the next season like one episode of it and then he did you're like a super fan q a yeah well i'm really in i am (laughs) he's great he's like definitely i don't know yeah it's very interesting he's like canadian hilarity mild-mannered yeah yeah and um He's a boy you can like. He's like a Title IX boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this relates to my story, which is that we went to the show outside of Philly, and what we realized when we got to the show, that at least of the subset of people who watch that show and would actually buy tickets to a live show and go and see something Q&A, and obviously we knew that it wasn't just going to be Q&A, because why would you go to a live theater just to watch an episode of TV and then just, like, take a couple questions? Yeah. But I don't 
think that everyone assumed that there was going to be any kind of monkey business. And basically, what but we you learned. Did. Well, I, you're a pessimist. Exactly. So I was like, this is going to be good and negative. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but basically, most of the people that went to the show were young um, business students. So, you know, in that show, his whole conceit is that he's like a faux shark tank or faux. Um, he got really good grades in business school. Yeah, really. He got, he went to Canada, one of Canada's top business schools and got really good grades. Yeah. And it turns out that there's all these dudes in the audience that memorize the opening and that are like business dickhead <laughs> super fans, right? Oh, wow. But they're like college students. So he gets the questions and the first guy is like, ooh, 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 pick me. And he got picked and he's 19 years old. And Nathan, for you, makes him go up on the stage and sit. And he's like, before you ask me a question, I'd like to get to know you so that I can know where this question is coming from. And he proceeds to basically, you know, extemporaneously eviscerate this dude (laughs) who was so cocksure and so confident in his self and like basically the embodiment of everything that we talk about when we talk about like patriarchy and white supremacy (laughs) which are buzzwords of the day but like he literally was the embodiment of like yes my name is whatever his name was and uh i go to lehigh and i'm uh i'm a double major in business and international relations um and nathan of course is like Lehigh, oh, what's that? Is that a good school? And he's like, yes, it's a very good school. Uh, are you in a fraternity? And the guy goes, yeah, I'm in Peak or Deke or some, I don't know, some acronym. Yeah. And Nathan's like, oh, I don't know anything. You know, I'm Canadian. I don't know anything. He's like, but I did hear one thing about that fraternity. And he just like, puts that out there and then they go on and he's asking about hazing and the got the the kid goes no there's no hazing and even if there was was I wouldn't tell you you know because he's trying to he's trying to go toe-to-toe with Nathan for you which Just is not possible sheer madness. this person is a professional <laughs> they're way smarter than you they've been doing it longer than you and they actually know what they're doing on and this stage. guy is like misjudging that nathan will be like impressed by or like on some level yeah like, or like, that he's gonna be like that's the thing this maybe that's the optimism thing the optimism versus pessimism like this kid and of course he's a child he's 19 years old yeah but this kid feels so confident that he's gonna be able to ask a question and ask a question and have fun and maybe get ripped like of course he thinks he's going to get ribbed but he has no idea what's coming from him but the whole time he feels so confident that he is um sort of rhetorically matched for the person that he's going up against (laughs) so that it's really one of the most cringe inducing things to watch even when you're like kind of rooting for this kid to be kind of taken down a peg because of his unearned confidence and optimism um, (laughs) in the face of being, you know, a person in the world that has the right to be, uh, you know, 
just be confident. Right. Right? And so it goes on for many, many minutes. And they're talking about hazing and they're talking about, you know, Nathan and the faux naive is like, this is what I've heard. You know, I've heard about hazing. Is that true? You know, he's acting all, all like, I have no idea. Um, and then probably like 30 minutes later, he's like, yeah, so I was playing this college in Florida and I asked the crowd what was the worst fraternity. And they all yelled out whatever the name of this kid's fraternity was. And the kid was like, uh, you know, kind of moving around in the chair being like, well, we could, you know, like, a, like trying to defend it. And then Nathan goes, and I asked why. And they all screamed out, rape. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, you got us both. Yeah. <laughs> With your punchline. It was amazing. It's good. Because... First of all, he drew it out in that uncomfortable way and he got him like really deep into the conversation and really invested in like defending his sort of culture of rape of well, let's just say like a sort of confident masculinity college boy. Right. Dude, bro, culture. It's a good school, and our fraternities have been around for years, and yeah. they're extremely successful. It's great. And we're all friends. It's about bonding. Yeah, like, and I'm sure all those things are true. I'm sure that they're great. But it was so funny because then he brought him into he brought him on this whole journey, and at the end, he he said, "Yeah, they said rape," and he's like, you know, basically he he then kind of switched because he was half the character and then half what I imagine is like the comedian or the public persona and he was like basically I can't remember verbatim what he said but he was basically like yeah it's crazy that your like masculinity is so fragile that you have to you know that this has to be your reputation and that that you're so um squirmy about this and that like this is something that you have to do in your culture I'm definitely not putting it as like satisfyingly as Nathan for you was but it was kind of an amazing it was this weird circle where he just he just totally eviscerated like bro rape culture in the most um friendly and Canadian way and he also diplomatically yeah and I also just like really enjoyed the way that he was calm and he he basically outmatched this person with his um, intellectual ability. So that was kind of interesting. And it happened a couple of other times. I will say that he had like two guys and a girl that came up and he wasn't as biting with the woman. He definitely did get her in the middle of like a pedophilia type narrative joke, which was like definitely uncomfortable. But, um, but it didn't seem as uh, as pointed at at the very being of these people because the but also the other dude that came up there started like walking on the stage like he was in like a hip hop battle like starting like you know from the side of the stage like talking shit and Nathan was like sit down you know basically so I don't know how I got to tell this story but that show is really good yeah but he seems like someone who probably hates his 
fans in a way, or like has a set of fans that he like doesn't One associate would, with in a yeah, way. No. Maybe um, that's too harsh. Yeah, I mean. By the way, this is actually a Nathan for you podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a fan cast. It's a fan cast. Yeah. A yeah. fan cast. Okay. <laughs> Comedy Central. Pod, pod you got, for you. you yeah. You, got, you know any other apps that you can recap? Okay. You got. Well, you um, you got that Comedy Central. Yeah, we have the Comedy Central. So money. sweet. Nice. We have a great lineup. We have a. Uh, um, Joyce Pensado is going to come do the episode about the pantsing. Um, <laughs> it's really good. Artist on Nathan. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can recommend the upcoming episode that I saw a preview of. It's very funny. And also, I did find him very... I think we talked about Andy Kaufman last time on the, this podcast. Yeah. And I found him very Andy Kaufman. Like, there was one thing that he showed, which was they... Oh, that... That was the thing. He gave everyone a prize. And for the last guy, he gave him a prize of the Nathan For You Seasons 1 and Season 2 DVD signed on the shrink wrap, which (laughs) killed me. I just couldn't stop laughing about signed on the shrink wrap. But then he, like, launched into, do you guys have this DVD? No one had it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to show you one of the commentaries from the DVD. And it was this Bill Gates impersonator who didn't know anything about computers who came in for to do the commentary on one episode that he was in and the commentary is simply the visual of the episode and this bill gates impersonator receiving a phone call from at&t where he's disputing the bill (laughs) and it's just the audio is just rolling the entire time and it's actually so funny he's He's very talented. Yeah. So for a second, we thought we were getting out of the Nathan for you. Yeah, we, we went right we back keep in. Going no, no, no. It's, back it's a bottomless. <laughs> yeah. Well. I'm pessimistic we'll ever get out of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely um, recommend that show. Full on recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you have any Nathan friends that you call Nathan for you now? Oh no, I don't. Well, one of my uh, friends' sons is named Nathan. And he Do you like, secretly think Nathan for you? A little bit, like, or I think, wow, you're really lucky that your kid's named Nathan. <laughs> it used to be a basic name, but now it's really come back. Exactly. Yeah, swinging. Yeah, so. Yeah, I have a, a friend whose child is named Hugo, and in my head I always think baby Hugo, <laughs> even though he's like five. And like the last time I called him that he was like I'm not a baby and I can count to ten I know kids hate it when you call them babies I mean it's totally fair it's even when they're like one yeah they already hate it they're not babies they're already not babies they're people yeah um they kind of act like babies yeah I mean I think that's like an interesting to amazingly you brought it our first repeat or our second repeat guest actually second um, repeat because uh, we had another repeat guest right before you, but you were our first. Okay, I'm walking out. But yours coming out first. Okay, you're yeah. you were invited first, and we fought for you. Okay, all right. <laughs> we. I'm um, still here. Exactly. Right. Um, you brought it right back to comedy and pessimism, and I think there's something interesting in the idea of someone being. Um, aware enough about the world to be pessimistic about the likelihood of anything going right but also like 
having the impetus to make work about it. I mean, because making work is like sort of a fundamentally optimistic practice. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think um, I'm not a glass half empty type pessimist. Um, because, yeah, how could you get up in the morning and do anything? And I was thinking about it. I'm, I don't even have the right sort of philosophical or literary references for pessimism. I'm just sort of thinking about it as, um, I think another thing that we talked about last time, I'm not sure actually if we did, but like meeting David doing, um, improv for the first time and how the first thing that they say in improv is like it's all about yes and then what's next and the process of doing improv with Hollis Witherspoon which I really like and makes me deeply uncomfortable um, really has taught me how into the idea of no I am (laughs) and it's interesting because in you know since the election of Trump it's been I think the power of no has been kind of reclaimed um while there's obviously a huge amount of uh, pessimism, it's not full despair, like, oh, it's just going straight to hell. Um, and I might think that the general graph is going down, <laughs> but um, but I definitely think, like, I still think there's a reason to get up in the morning. So it's not, like, nihilistic. So I don't know. I don't know how to actually properly define it in terms of philosophy and theory but just I guess in terms of popular culture and popular feeling and also just activities um, I feel like getting up in the morning and whether it's going to studio going to work you know doing whatever you do and then just being there the next day to do it again um, for me that's a kind of that's kind of as affirmative as I can get if that makes sense and I think there's such a rhetoric or a culture of like everyone should get exactly what they want exactly when they want it and if you don't you're not actualizing yourself in the right way like I think that's oppressive that kind of optimism is really oppressive well it's interesting to think about in terms of uh I mean this is cycling back to a little bit what you said at the beginning but like because right the like improv element of like yes is like you it like makes you both listen to the other person and have to like um anticipate like what their desire in like the the fictional construct of the scene right and uh and yeah it's just interesting to like i mean so much of what's happened since we last recorded is like people who are either not listening or like are kind of saying no and not actually constructing something that's like uh like a kind of compromise space, right? Like the improv zone is like always a compromise between like what the desires of the people in the room kind of are. And uh, yeah, I don't know, it's like a weird. Yeah, so like not being surprised that, like being crushed, but not being surprised that Trump won the election because you feel like, and for me, that's very, that's a not pessimistic, that's realistic. Did you think, yeah. Well, okay, I thought every moment when I saw Trump getting more and more support, I thought that he was put that he had the potential to win. Um, after the Access Hollywood tape, 
I basically, I was installing a show that day um, at Halsey McKay Gallery in Long Island, and it was a show that I co-curated with Sarah Vanderbeek, and we called the show Her Wherever, um, which was a kind of oblique reference to Trump saying that Megyn Kelly had blood coming out of her wherever. Oh, yeah. Um, and that night, I went back to the sort of like cabin that I was staying in, it was a Friday night, and so um, I was watching on like HBO Go, Bill Maher, or something like that, and uh, I saw the Access Hollywood thing come out, and then I just sort of stayed up half the night looking at all the news about Access Hollywood yeah. and basically feeling like a sense of um, exhilaration. Because I thought, oh, this is over. He's doomed. Yeah. Like, I really was like, oh, thank Christ. This is... There's no way. There's no possible way. And then I think after that just got crossed over, I was like, oh, yeah, this is crazy. I'd say on the day of the election, because of things like the polls and the Nate Silver and the the New York Times. That classic, like... um what was the odometer like looking thing that was on their website yeah that's like that basically showed that it was statistically impossible that he would win i started to have a little bit of hope i did sort of feel when i went to the voting booth like we are going to get a woman president um but to the point of negativity like Kyle and I w- woke up that morning and we were like fuck that guy like we weren't like I mean I, this is probably really sad to say yeah we weren't like first woman president yay Hillary Clinton yay we were like fuck that guy yeah and that was my first thought when I woke up that day yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, it fe- I mean, I think that, like I said, it's not like nihilism and it's not the idea that, that it's not worth fighting for the just world that you think should exist because um, that's definitely not my position or anything that I think is really that healthy. Um, but actually, even for the first time in my entire life, like I... So I like permanently moved to New York in 2000, but I started living here in the summers in 1997. And um, basically, ever since then, I listened to like Democracy Now! or Brian Lehrer and Leonard Lopate like all day in the studio. What will we do when Brian Le- when they retire? Yeah, mm-hmm. I have no idea. But yeah. basically, this is what I'm about to say. In the past couple of months, I stopped listening interesting to wnyc which sounds in, like nothing that's, but i was the person that had that on the on the <laughs> audio all day every day in the studio um like a lot of artists or in the car because i was in the car a lot um 
And part of it was because I was going to a dark, dark, dark place. And I mean, I think that's also the thing that I was thinking about in terms of millennials, which I know you guys are millennials, but let's say the younger generation, Don't you forget it. <laughs> the younger generation, not really maybe your age, but my students age, I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, these people, they their only consciousness was during Obama's pre- presidency. So they don't know what it was like under Bush as an adult, at least, or even as like a sentient oh yeah kind of person like it was really bad it was yeah totally and the way that i'm feeling right now is sort of the way that it felt in 2004 when you know it was the iraq war and the and the response to 9-11 which was insane and uh just the insanity of carl rove and dick cheney and we thought oh yeah we're dethroning this. This is crazy. And Bush got in for another four. So if you ask me today, I definitely think Trump's an eight-year president. It's really hard for me to say that because everyone around me is like, no, but Mueller and this and that. But I just feel like we have to kind of buckle up for the long haul because once they're in there, it's kind of bad. I would love to be proved wrong. Well, yeah, I mean... That's a pretty pessimistic thing to say. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it sounds like what you were talking, what David was talking about was like the the difference between pessimism, which is realism, which is sort of like acknowledgement of the reality of the current situation and sort of uh, pragmatic approaches in spite of what you know to be true about human nature and apathy and the optimist who got up on Nathan for you's show cuz he was like he didn't know any better he was cool he you know yeah. like just like optimism is sort of like blind in that it's in white that, it, it's definitely yeah it's that, definitely that's white, what white. <laughs> like, it's just speaking cliches <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting i was just especially in preparation, like I didn't do a lot of good preparation for this um, topic, but one of the pieces that I recently started looking at um, was this book, Afro-Pessimism by Frank Wilderson. And I just brought a quote just sort of to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a really interesting text that I haven't fully gotten into, but... Um, So he says, following Afro-pessimism to understand black liberation as a negative dialectic, a politics of refusal and refusal to affirm as an embrace of disorder and incoherence and as an act of political apostasy. This is not to categorically reject every project of reform for decreased suffering will surely make life momentarily easier, but rather to take to task any movement invested in the preservation of society. So it kind of goes on, but basically, um, dot, 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 this also places undue faith in politicians and police to do something other than maintain, as they always have and will, the institutions, schools, courts, prisons, projects, voting booths, neighborhood associations, sustaining anti-blackness. So basically, one of the themes of Afro-pessimism is 
that you just reorient your focus from a sort of, if I'm understanding it correctly, to a anti-anti-blackness. So it's a negative against negativity, if that makes sense. And I think that, um, while I don't have any authority on Afro-pessimism, I think that makes a lot of sense to describe what's going on right now and the way that I am optimistic when I start to see things like, um, you know, what's going on in the NFL um, with Colin Kaepernick and with the various people who are um, starting to join his movement because they have a huge platform. Um, or even the way, as painful as it is, that being able to speak openly about white supremacy is now becoming like a mainstream thing, which previously was really only on college campuses. Um, or the ways in which all these people are coming out of the woodwork about single payer health care, where I would have been so pessimistic before the it's it's a little bit also why kind of the optimism of millennials is kind of cool um like I never would have been able to imagine that in the wake of all this negativity and shit people would be able to be like oh actually we'll see your previous compromise like Obamacare and we'll raise it and just go for what we actually may believe in because it's all shit anyway. It's all like, you know, and we might have a moment here to create a... Uh, Actual future? Yeah. Or at least create a change in course. I mean, I think it's interesting to think about, like, you were saying your students who have, like, mostly grown up under Obama and, like, how confusing probably Obama is as, like, a figure I mean I think probably for history anyway because he's like I mean because in a sense I feel like certainly in the terms of Afrofuturism you were just reading like he was very much about maintaining a sort of status quo of the state like he very much seemed to not be interested in uh, I mean obviously he expanded the state like with you yeah. know and positive ways but like yeah. but yeah and deportations all that but his like vibe was like totally positive and like future forward right like so I feel like in a way like if I were if he was the only president I knew I'd be like oh my god like the the future is limitless and, the, and yet also the figure who's like promising that to me is like keeping us in the past like once I get a little more educated you know like yeah it's totally complicated I also I've had this argument with people and I feel for all of Obama's faults and the things that we might criticize him on I think he kind of did he kind of, you know, did some did the impossible in yeah. terms of he was in a box and he was he was realistic about what um, is actually possible. And I also think, like a sort of Gen X on the on the verge of um, of baby boomer like generation, he also was kind of optimistic about the best in people and things like that. Totally. Um, but to that end, I also really liked the Ta-Nehisi Coates piece that just came out in the Atlantic called The First White President. Yeah. Um, because I think that's 
maybe this is too much of a tangent from what we're talking about, but I think that's sort of what the 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 Afro pessimism is talking about. Like, okay, let's call this what it is. Obviously, every other president besides Obama was oh, yeah. white, but this is like the first person that's been trying to define themselves via taking down they're just so offended by the fact that there was a black president that was actually successful by normal standards. Um, well, it's he, disgusting. Well, all, and also the like other piece, I can't remember what that was called. Maybe it was like we were eight years in oh, the White House, we, right? That's the book, yeah. but like the, so the piece he wrote at we the had end a, of, yeah. yeah, like was so much about, which I guess had an interview with Obama too. And I think the like point of that piece was like that Coates, concluded that he felt like Obama was like a serial optimist and right his like biraciality like allowed him to kind of maintain this illusion that like history is has like progress and that like that wasn't Coates's like conclusion right in part because as he was writing it he like got the released like FBI files I think of his father who had been being surveilled as he was like trying to you know convince Obama like well why do you think that the next president will be reasonable with this like drone power or or whatever yeah but but it was very much in terms of like how do you think about what the future may hold or may not or like what's that kind of frame I mean I don't know yeah it goes into a kind of dark space yeah it's interesting because I feel like we're kind of teasing out the distinction between pessimism which I feel like all three of us are defining as informed although I don't want to say that Obama was not informed. It's a side. Um, I know your pet theory that he's uninformed. <laughs> I've got we some, don't want yeah, to go there. My Ann Coulter. You want to, you want to see his, his law grades. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His grades. Did he get really good grades at a good school? All I'm saying is Ann Coulter had, writes a book a year, and yeah. I feel like that's important. Like, that's a lot of work. Some people don't care. A lot of words. A lot, a lot of, of words. words. Um, but anyway, between... Pessimism, which is sort of like acknowledging that we are fundamentally kind of greedy, and cynicism, which is more nihilistic, as you were describing it, just sort of like in the sense of um, not giving anyone the benefit of the doubt. I feel like um, a prag pragmatist which it seems like you are in terms of the way you approach the world and your practice is like is pessimistic but without closing any doors like prior to yeah it's a little bit in my case I think it's a little bit hedgy um and I don't know directly what that that's just like a personal you know I kind of um yeah, I'm not dropping out. I'm not. I'm fully participating in the capitalist system. You know, having a job and a mortgage and uh, traditional like health insurance. And you guys have a mortgage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do I look different? Yeah. For us millennials, that seems even we can't wow. even get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have lots of debt, like a good <laughs> capitalist. Good student debt, mortgage debt car payment debt, credit card debt. It's the one thing we agree with Trump about. Like, debt is good. Get a lot of debt. Exactly. I'm totally into it. Um, but 
yeah, basically what I was going to say about pragmatism. And again, I don't know the technical, philosophical definition of pragmatism. I'd like to read more about that. Um, but I think that's the sort of, that is, that might actually even, I think Obama type person is kind of a pragmatic optimist. Um, which is why he probably did something like he was such a he got so much done because he was just such a good compromiser and he was very keen on doing the thing that could get done not the not the thing that would make a point which is why you know the affordable care act aka obamacare is like it is and and it was because he was just accepting all the bullshit that people threw up in front of it and still achieving it but it turns out to maybe have been the right wager um anyway i don't i don't know why we're kind of like political wonkiness yeah talking but it's definitely the thing that's on everyone's mind yeah it kind of infects everything yeah i mean that's the thing i stopped listening to npr i actually tried to stop reading and thinking about the current state of the politics it's been creeping in a little bit so what do you listen to instead well i've been trying to listen to um podcasts that don't have anything to do so anyone who's listening to this podcast for art and then just yeah hearing us talking about trump the whole time (laughs) cool um i think yeah we try to be a podcast that has nothing to do with anything with art (laughs) upsetting yeah well, but that's the thing. As a pessimist, everything's upsetting, I would say. Everything can be upsetting. I don't know. Have you ever listened to The Splendid Table? Yes. Did you find it upsetting? <laughs> it's, it's the podcast that I listen to. To the most. Like, as a Yeah, that's on my list of things that are just like drivel like just like whatever it just feels good <laughs> well it's just like background noise and you're you're like oh someone's talking about something and they're really excited what are your go-to like um lately i've been having a hard time because i did go through i went through a period where i was like on the male comedian podcast zone and mm-hmm. then i went into like super political always and then I've been weaning myself off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been harder. So recently I've been kind of back on like a hybrid. So I was listening to um, Hari Kondabolu and W. Kamau Bell's uh, podcast. I forgot what it's called. Yeah, I don't know what it's called either. But it's pretty good. Um, and then sort of listening to kind of book type podcasts or I'm kind of thinking about people I want to hear talk and searching for them and then listening to all the podcast episodes that they have. Like earlier, before we started recording, we were talking about Laura Kipnis and I just listened to a bunch of podcasts with her interviews. Did she talk about any of... Well... Yeah, there's there's a couple of recent ones where she's talking about unwanted advances, which is the talk about um, the Title IX yeah. uh, stuff on campus. It's sexual paranoia comes to campus is the subtitle or something like that mm-hmm. um and then there i listened to one that was her earlier about her earlier book men a polemic that's a good title yeah it's like a collection of essays um and yeah so i've been listening to to those and i've also been listening to friends on 
different art podcasts. But there is something in like the studio. I'm not really interested in hearing artists talk. Yeah. Hmm. It'd have to be on my leisure time. A uh, considerable leisure time. <laughs> you know, as someone with a mortgage, I have so much free time. Yeah. <laughs> she buzzers it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with regard to what we were talking about before we started recording, like in terms of being a professor and being in charge of students in a moment when there's like such a thing as like trigger warnings and like um safe spaces for students it must be a very kind of complicated space to navigate in terms of like you might put something on twitter and and it's clearly parodic or whatever and and then all of a sudden your livelihood is compromised because a student sees it or yeah i mean that's been happening more and more um and i joined a kind of informal group called Art Professors America. We're trying to sound kind of fascista. Um, <laughs> but, and our loose idea is that we would at least attempt to be a voice for academic freedom in the sense of um, protecting professors from being um fired for being political in any way. But I think that the the moment of free speech and the meaning of free speech and the meaning of um, that kind of freedom is so discombobulated and, and difficult right now because it's actually going through a shift and being co-opted in the same way that, um, you know, the Nazism of the white supremacist marches um, is just so mainstreamed right now that it's it becomes different than sort of in the 60s or whenever the Nazis like marched in Skokie and the ACLU was defending them like something is switching Um, and it's definitely that's the thing like I thinking about joking and things like that like um i recently wrote like a very short text for this journal that's coming out called objective journal and the question the prompt was about artistic subjectivity in the current environment and basically i just talked about joking and about how um you know there's the uh, Marks uh, remark about history repeating itself first as tragedy, then as farce, and how I've been saying first as farce, then as tragedy. Um, and when it reverses like that, like what is humor and what is comedy and what is funny, um, when it's actually like genuinely Donald Trump is a comedian like his he's not smart he doesn't have anything to say this is a controversial opinion i think i have too which is yeah he's funny his his form his aesthetic is comedian yeah Uh, 
even the oversized suit and the red tie it's very rodney dangerfield the, like exclamation points yeah like the whole thing. and and his affect believe me and it's all very this kind vaudeville of thing. like the way he talks around things too in a way he's like oh yeah yeah it's so but when, also like like even like sorry um the the bit about like blood coming out of her wherever that you mentioned earlier that's a really good line like that's that's like pretty yeah that's pretty together to be able to be like i'm not only making fun of this woman i am drawing a correlation between blood coming out of her eyes which is like a specific you know aphorism that or idiom that we know and like blood coming out of her whatever like implying that like she was not in her right mind because she was menstruating because she's a woman because like that it's like such a complex like an interesting like incredibly brilliant like he's brilliant yeah i i i don't, I don't know he's... i'm not there with you i think he's <laughs> a fucking moron but yeah, he yeah. does have good comic performance skills you think he's like a savant well, I think, like, what you're, like, if you listen to him speak, he's, like, never, like, it's not brilliant because it's, like, it's all reactive. I feel like he, like, goes from sentence to sentence and, like, is, I feel like is very dialed into the reaction of the people around him, which is he, why. But he's not a yes and, he's a no and. He's, yeah, no, I, I think he constantly agrees with people. He'll, like, I, I don't think he's, like, I don't think a, he has a, any thoughts. Yeah, he's not a linear thinker at all so that like doesn't matter what you know he says from kind of one moment to another and the best thing is watching other people read transcripts of him talking you're like what because it doesn't make any sense and even the most generous reading of the transcripts you're like this person's having a stroke right now yeah um it's very sad but but so you read a text or well yeah or a kind of a response but i'm thinking about this and I think it's going to play out over the next couple of years. Like, what does it mean when this, like, fascist, awful abomination of a piece of shit person appears as a comedian? What does it mean for being a comedian? It kind of kneecaps it to me. Yeah. And again, I'm not ready to give up laughing and, and making fun of things and making jokes and the, the form of humor um as a subversive act and as uh you know in the spirit of social justice which i think is my main one of my main interests in comedy yeah but at the same time i'm looking at the spectacle and i'm seeing how humor has been weaponized against what is right and what is just and it's like it's destroys me um or there was a woman who laughed out loud during jeff sessions confirmation hearing yeah and was convicted it's crazy what what was the sentence i mean yeah oh, was the sentence harsh like i can't even remember i don't thing. remember what the yeah. exact sentence was and i think that it got i think it was commuted yeah and that but then it got something it got another like she got charged again after it was commuted commuted just insane um but you know or you read a story of like someone laughing at their husband and getting the like, shit beat out of them like so or killed or something like and that's so we've obviously. all been there yeah we <laughs> sorry <laughs> do not laugh at me <laughs> um <laughs> but 
anyway so all these different ways that whereas humor and making fun has always been a sort of tool of the oppressed um you start with like vaudeville which is coming out of like the jewish ghetto or you start with um with minstrelsy which is a co-optation of the humorous uh folk ways of slaves so that's like maybe an antecedent to what's going on right now which is that the forms of of protest and of like of just on a daily basis dealing with oppression and and violence um in the 19th century were sort of appropriated by white supremacists um to into popular culture and then you know something had to change but i think that that's what i'm kind of getting to right now there's like this way in which the form of comedy the form of the stand-up the form of parody is turning into a national nightmare so what does it mean to be um be funny or be in relation to things that are comedic and trying to have some kind of social commentary when the figurehead at the front of all this is incredibly let's say aesthetically funny but do you think i mean because you were saying earlier how in some ways this is very similar to the bush years or at least people kind of were forgetting like you know that it was like bad back then but it's i feel like in that period comedy was like very vital right or at least like yeah in its discussion with like even though bush was also kind of a clownish figure in a way yeah he had a he had a kind of attempt at joking all the time yeah Yeah. i mean it's just interesting to think about why like trump's particular why like this movement i mean it's it's more serious in a way but then things also were pretty bad then too obviously like in some ways the scales are different yeah it's really hard for me to understand what it is but i think um it's a devolution of something but yeah bush did attempt to be entertaining yeah and his little like (laughs) (laughs) well this was like a clown i mean he was also very you know ridiculous figure well that's the thing we thought he was so dumb and he was and we were like oh this guy has no thoughts but he could string sentences and paragraphs together and read them properly and and possibly even think them (laughs) and that is just not something i can say about right now it's really like that movie idiocracy yeah like so hardcore um so yeah that's all to say that what is what is the aesthetic of funny or of of the comedian when it's the person the figure the aesthetic of just total oppression and just pure evil and terrible person like i kind of wish people would just start being like yeah donald trump's a piece of shit on television because there's just really nothing else to say yeah and And say nothing else this person's a piece of shit and we're not quite there like i mean it's funny because i I was like we're almost there but but we i mean yeah you see how controversial like any 
like this whole ESP, ESPN thing or um, but do you think that's because of oh I'm sorry I didn't mean to oh, no, no, but yeah. um, do you think that's because of what you were articulating with regard to humor like there's always that sort of like if something is funny it can be discounted or it can be sort of it can alleviate the stress of like what you like you know you look at a like Louis C.K. like transcript and you read it in your head and it's horribly offensive in right. places what do you think about him oh this came up on the panel the book forum panel yeah what about Tig Notaro? yeah <laughs> yeah about the Tig Notaro Louis C.K. thing I thought that I mean that's incredibly interesting because Louis C.K. was like um sort of given such huge amount of credit for tweeting about Tig Notaro's cancer set and yeah. like setting her off and then she proverbially you know bit the hand that fed her with a little bit of potential truth so um I just you know I'm never surprised when things come out that I mean it's like the thing about Clinton I mean actually the one thing I'm surprised about is that nothing ever came out about Obama because I'm pretty much never surprised when that bad stuff when like I'm uh, when there's like a story of a man being inappropriate sexually with or being you know using their power their perceived power or something in in a way to sort of take advantage like I sh- I wish I weren't but I'm I'm never like what I'm usually like oh okay all right I think that's maybe also part of the pessimistic thing like I I I know people have you know, there a lot of people have shitty, shitty uh, tendencies, or are just they're just shitty people. <laughs> Even if they're, I mean, it's like I think about this a lot because of also Woody Allen. Yeah. Um, and art, also Bill Cosby. Art yeah. made by shitty, shitty, shitty people. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, see, it's just so weird that see, I mean, his movie. The new one, which I guess is about like Woody Allen, kind of. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't. Seen, I mean, I I don't think anyone. I think it just premiered, but yeah. like he like recorded it in secret. It's like a he plays a Woody Allen type who is I Bill think, Cosby does. <laughs> That's yeah, hilarious. Yeah, exactly. That would be. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, he plays. So he plays someone who's like has a affair or like a relationship with like a I think a 19 year old I don't know the exact part but it's mirrors, it was like Manhattan it, yeah it mirrors Manhattan and like Woody Allen's whole thing and on the press tour TK is like asked constantly about the Notaro accusation and like is this movie also kind of about your you know secret like situation which is obviously been rumored about for years and he's like well you know he like doesn't want to talk about that at all and yet like kind of gets to have his cake and eat it too like in this way it's like the movie is about these things but he won't really acknowledge i don't know it's weird i'll be interested to see whether people are as into him in five years as they are now yeah is that a bummer um no that's the thing it's not it's, just, it's not surprising yeah i was just gonna say like i feel like this is the most on topic we've ever stayed Oh, yeah. episode i really like <laughs> i'm so happy yeah. i mean it's it's uh it's the jenny holzer aphorism yeah. abuse of power comes as no surprise 
if you're a man but that's sorry about that beeping um but being a man in this culture is synonymous with power yeah and it's probably sometimes a burden for men (laughs) but it's usually just not a good scene um but yeah i forgot what i was gonna say about the whole comedians being leches and rapists thing it does go to that perennial question like can you separate the man from the artist (laughs) and to some extent or you know let's not forget Roman Polanski um, and I'm sure countless more yeah to some extent can you like there's one aspect where I think you should you know especially because I'm sure you guys know so many artists that are shitty people or that have been shitty and what's the you know let's say like if an artist is a rapist in our culture it's fine if an artist is like a murderer it's fine Carl Andre um (laughs) yeah no it's true I mean what else is fine (laughs) no I mean you don't yeah it like just kind of gets buried or like everyone just forgets but I don't know I mean it's like I really hope we cut this out because you used to I love your my mother. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did she do? <laughs> Is she a rapist or a murderer? She's. Oh my gosh. Um, we'll, we'll have to cut this out. She doesn't have a good sense of humor. Yeah, she's she's not funny. She's yeah. That's it. Um, no. <laughs> my mom, like when I was growing up, like would be like, you know, like on every Martin Luther King Day, she would be like, yeah, but you know. He cheated on his wife. He wasn't very nice to her at all. And I would be like, how do I think about that? My mother discounts the achievements and the like efforts of Martin Luther King because he was a bad husband. And in that sense, like, how do I think about that in terms of anyone who is attempting to do something positive in the world, but also is like... Right. Plus, also, we're not interested in people that are, like, perfect. That's so uninteresting. Like, conflicted, flawed, deeply imperfect people are compelling and interesting. Um, I think it's it gets murky because there's the... That's the sort of place that it converges with the sense that there's injustice around um, male privilege and what's called rape culture Um, I mean I think it's complicated it's like Lenny even Lenny Riefenstahl Um, and I don't have like a hard and fast rule I think everything should be seen in its own context but um, I it's kind of hard after you've had an experience like of watching Manhattan or Annie Hall or um, you know 
Rosemary's Baby or uh, The Cosby Show, it's hard to sort of shatter your initial experience by being like, I can't, I'm not allowed to like that because this person's about, or Martin Luther King or JFK or Malcolm X. I mean, that was something I was going to say earlier that I was surprised nothing's come out about Obama because I think that there's a real there's a real thing about the ability to be like a powerful political man or even like want to be president or think you can be president and feel like the world belongs to you including women that's the Bill Clinton thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. Well, and that Obama's still interesting, even though he's, like, perfect, seemingly. Yeah. But he had, like, a... It's sort, maybe it's, like, kind of Catholic or something, like... He because he had... Oh, he was smoking. No, but, like... He, <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> like, his father left them, you know, and he had that struggle. Yeah. Um. So I think that's not necessarily like a personal flaw um but it's some sort of pathos that is within him um plus i think there's yeah i mean i think he's definitely a confident cocky man like that's Definitely part of his affect. That's his whole thing. Yeah. He's hopeful. But he doesn't seem like a dick. Right. And nothing's come out about him yet. Being a dick. Yeah. Being like a secret dick. Yeah, or being like a... Yeah, like, why do we care an adulterer? Like, is this Puritan? Like, whatever. But yeah, there is something where we we, um, see these people as heroic and we want them to be perfect or something. Do you like... um, it makes me think about Pod Save America and like yeah. how those guys are like right on the edge of like being dicks. I feel like. Well, they're like a super bro culture, but yeah. they're like quote unquote woke. Right, kind of. Kind of, but yeah. they're like they're like on the left, right? Yeah. But I think that's one of the things that's interesting to me about listening to that podcast is it's so masculine and bro-y and I think like I've said before I find it really really interesting to kind of listen in to people in their when they're just like doing their thing and having their bro conversations they're they're almost talking the way that they don't think you'd be listening or it's like so Mm -hmm. jovial it's totally I guess that's all to say that I'm personally interested in that aesthetic so it doesn't offend me, um, but I recognize that it's it's like an aesthetic of dominance <laughs> and privilege.